Reflections and Aspirations. In this episode, we talk to CFTC Chairman Chris Giancarlo on his legacy and what's left to be done. Welcome to FIA Speaks, a podcast at the center of the futures, options, and listed derivatives markets, and the interesting people who work in them, run exchanges, and regulate this industry. FIA's mission is to support open, transparent, and competitive markets, protect and enhance the integrity of the financial system, and promote high standards of professional conduct. Please note we have a lengthy disclaimer that I encourage you to listen to or read at FIA.org. But in short, this podcast is meant to be informative about this industry and should not be relied on for investment advice. And now, here's your host, FIA President and CEO, Walt Lucan. Welcome to FI Speaks, a podcast that brings you the interesting topics and people that make up the futures options and clear derivatives marketplace. This podcast is available at FIA.org and will soon be available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are available. This is episode one of FIA Speaks, and we are thrilled to have the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the Honorable Christopher Giancarlo. Welcome, Mr. Chairman, to FIA Speaks. Walt, it's great to be with you. By way of background, Chairman Giancarlo has been serving in the role of chairman of the CFTC since January 2017 and has held the seat of commissioner since 2014. As chairman, he serves as chief executive of the CFTC, the U.S. regulatory agency that oversees the U.S. listed and cleared derivatives markets. In overseeing this agency, the chairman leads and is a member of a five-person commission that is appointed by the president and confirmed by the Senate to a staggered five-year terms. With his term's expiration in April, the chairman has announced that he will be leaving the agency later this summer. Chairman, now that we are approaching the end of your time at the CFTC, I would like to start with the beginning. Many of us know about your regulatory stances and accomplishments over the last several years, but do not know how or why you came to the Washington in the first place. Mr. Chairman, tell us about your background and what interested you in serving the public at the CFTC. Thanks, Walt. You know, it's, uh, boy, those five years have gone by fast. Uh, you know, I'm, as a young person, I never really aspired to a, a Washington career. I, I, I came out of law school and, and wound up uh, practicing law in, in New York and in, in London for, for 16 years and then went into business uh, in 2000 and uh, with some partners built uh, one of the world's largest um, electronic and, and hybrid trading uh, trading platforms for over-the-counter derivatives, um, and had a very successful run at that, and was able to take that company public and enjoy uh, great success building a, a global franchise. But in 2008, we found ourselves at the center of the financial crisis, um, and uh, that uh, the, the response to that was to the, create the Dodd Frank Act and pass the Dodd Frank Act, and then to implement. Many of the changes, and I and I supported all the elements of, of Title Seven, uh, but had some differences uh, with the way the uh, CFTC was implementing some of those changes, and that's really um, what what caused me to consider uh, an opportunity to serve. Um, and I was uh, delighted to be nominated by President Obama, and then renominated by um, President Trump to serve as chairman. Maybe I can talk a little bit about what those elements were. You know. Um, uh, during my time uh, with my former firm, we actually came up with the idea of creating a clearinghouse for credit default swaps. And back in 2004 and 2005, uh, we we worked with something called the Clearing Corp to create a clearinghouse for credit default swaps, as I mentioned. And that now is ICE Clear, 
uh, Clear Credit, uh, the leading clearinghouse for uh, credit fault swaps. So that initiative worked. Um, it was always, um, uh, it struck me that the process of reporting swaps to um, to data repositories, which had been started at the depository clear, uh, uh, clearing uh, uh, depository uh, uh, DTCC, I'm stumbling <laughs> on my words here, clearing yeah. corporation, uh, was the right approach, and that needed to be accelerated. And then it was odd to me that for every other uh, security-type instrument, uh, they were required to be traded on either broker-dealers or, in the case of, of uh, futures, to be uh, uh, traded through introducing brokers. It was odd that in the case of the largest swap categories, interest rates and, and CDS, that they were not required to be traded on a platform. So when those initiatives came up in the Dodd-Frank Act, I was very supportive of them. Clearing, uh, again, which we had tried to start in the private sector and successfully did. Swaps reporting, which had been started at DTCC. And also uh, having swaps trade on licensed platforms. As, as an operator of platforms, uh, we had no issue with the licensure of them. So. Uh, I commended Congress when it passed the Dodd-Frank Act, commended President Obama, and that may have led to my nomination a few years later to serve here at the CFTC, and I was delighted to do that. Um, I, I'm st I remain a very uh, big supporter of the implementation efforts by this agency to implement the, uh, the clearing mandate. I'm a big supporter of its efforts to implement the data reporting mandate, although in, in some recent areas we're um, I've had to say that we, not enough progress has been made, and, and the CFTC needs to be uh, um, uh, more, more robust in pushing um, the global parties that are involved in that effort to get more done. And finally, in the area of uh, trading platforms, um, I've put forward a major proposal to, to really take a different approach to how we go about doing that, one that's less prescriptive, uh, more flexible. And my goal there is to make the United States the best regime for swaps execution um, in, in the global base in the, in the global world. As someone who spent 15 years building um, uh, swaps execution platforms, um, I know that uh, it's very hard to get that right. And we were at the center of the market. We were the largest um, trading platform for swaps, and still some of our platforms didn't take off, didn't gain traction in the marketplace. And that forms my view that the last people that should be trying to design that are, are regula regulators. They're never going to be close enough to technology, never going to be close enough to the heart of the market to know the optimal way for swaps to trade. That really should be done uh, at the point of execution, just as it's done at the point of execution in the futures market. So those are my, uh, my, my views on the implementation, but I came to the CFTC uh, to really focus on, on that side of the ledger to complete the effort that was started by the G20 in Pittsburgh in 2009 and by the CFTC uh, to get the swaps provisions done, to complement its very strong work in the area of futures execution, uh, and, and to enable this agency to, to go forward uh, as the world's premier uh, derivatives regulatory agency. I think people would be surprised, I mean, being the first Republican chair since the financial crisis, that you wholeheartedly supported the pillars of the G20, clearing, as you mentioned, reporting, execution where appropriate. Um, so you have, in essence, been fine-tuning the work that was developed coming out of the Dodd-Frank Act. I always remind people that the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of, of 2000 
um, actually was the first time that clearing of derivatives was allowed in the United States. Yeah. It was a voluntary system, um, and Dodd-Frank came in and made it mandatory for certain products. But I think you should be commended for really taking on those pillars and working to fine-tune it. And you have had initiatives like the KISS initiative and others to make sure that it's, it's working and practical. Well, Walt, you know, I was somewhat uniquely placed to actually be the member of, of my party, the Republicans, to endorse these reforms because in the marketplace, we had been working with those very reforms from a commercial point of view. And as I've told uh, people on the right side of the aisle, Congress got this piece right, and they got it right because they adapted the, really what were the best practices from the market. They adopted initiatives that were already making their way in the market. So, so really take the politics out of it. These were the right reforms. And now it's up to us at the agency to get the implementation right. And I consider that a matter of calibration. Tim Massey used the, used the phrase fine-tuning. I use the phrase, it's about calibrating. It's about uh, how do we get them in a way that works in, in, in a fashion that is really suitable for market activity. At the end of the day, uh, we operate in a global environment. I want the United States to have the most optimal regime possible. You know, uh, um, regulation is a lot like software. People adopt the software that works the best, and I think our regulatory efforts should be like a good piece of software that the market, the, the global market will be attracted to us because we've got the best set of rules. And certainly the case in futures, that works. Let's, let's do the same in swaps as well. I know you're very proud to, to lead this wonderful agency, the CFTC, um, you know, described as punching above its weight and overseeing this multi-billion dollar marketplace. Before we get more into the specifics of your accomplishments, and there's been many, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the agency itself and the people that work here. What, what do you think that makes this agency so special and so effective in its role? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I often think that I came here to, to, to optimize swaps reform, and, and I discovered when I came here that really the opportunity is to optimize the agency in a lot of ways. And I think there's a couple of things that makes this agency uh, so extraordinarily. I, I, I actually think it's the one job to have in Washington is to chair this agency. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is we report to the ag committees. And ag folks are just good folks. It, they're Midwestern. They've got a long tradition of, of working together um, and on a bipartisan basis in the House of the Senate. And, you know, the tone from the top comes down to the agency. We're a much less political agency than many others in Washington. Uh, we work very well. I brown bag lunch um, uh, two or three times a month with all of my fellow, each of my fellow commissioners. Um, and we have a very easy um, uh, way of dealing with each other. That doesn't mean every issue is easy. Nobody intends it to be. We, we must bring our different perspectives. But we work um, very well. Some people say we can disagree without being disagreeable, and I think that's true. Another thing that's unique about this agency is our markets are, for the most part, professional markets. And our agency staff are are highly expert in, in their areas of coverage. We have a really extraordinary degree of expertise and specialization in very, very sophisticated markets. Uh, we are the world's only derivatives exclusive regulator. And, and, and I think there's a connection between that and having the world's largest derivative markets. I think we have a degree of expertise and specialization that is unique. And then finally, I also think that um, for, for many people, because derivatives are complicated, they, they don't really know what this agency does. And I think just for some reason that leaves us out of the public eye, it allows us to get on with the job 
we have to do. And so I think there's a lot of reasons why this agency is very, very special. Last thing I'd say is we may, a lot of people domestically may not know who we are, but on the international level, this agency is really considered one of the premier derivatives regulators. And part of the reason for that is for decades, we've been training the world's derivatives regulator. This CFTC hosts a derivatives training process, and, and you go around the world, and, and a lot of people have come up through our training system. The reputation of this agency on a global basis is really extraordinary, and it's, it's an honor to, to lead this agency. As you, as you well know, Walt, having done it yourself. Now, I was, I was so proud to be a steward of this agency for a very brief period of time, but um, it, it is a pleasure to be associated with all these great folks, including yourself. And I, I, I appreciated the economics department as well. I mean, I think unlike other regula regulatory agencies, um, it's really emphasis on economics was, and Bruce Tuckman, what he's done here has been tremendous, and you must be very proud of that aspect of the job. I'll tell you what, when, when Bruce Tuckman accepted uh, my invitation to join the agency, I, I, I hop, skipped, and jumped. I mean, he is extraordinary. I, I recently was talking to the chief economist at the World Bank, uh, and he said to me, he said, you guys hired the best economist you have the best economist leading your agency of any economist in Washington. I said, including you, because he's an economist himself. And he said, including me. He says, Tuckman is really extraordinary. And I think Bruce has done terrific work. And we've only just begun. In fact, today, I just got word uh, that we've just recruited two new economists to, his, to, his, uh, to the Office of Chief Economist. And so we're really going from strength to strength there. Well, I know there's, your time is running out on your term as, as chairman, and like many leaders, you start to think about your legacy and what others will remember you for. Uh, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, I, I, I think it is um, really, really making the, the case for the value proposition of, of, of robust derivative markets. I, I, unfortunately, coming out of the crisis, uh, it, it became too easy for some uh, political sectors to blame markets and blame derivatives uh, for um, uh, elements of the crisis, w while forgetting the fact that our derivative markets provide a degree of stability and consistency to our modern way of life that would just be lost uh, if, if these markets were, were, were hampered or constrained um, and I've been, a, I think, a ceaseless ad advocate from, from my time in the minority to now as chairman of seizing every opportunity that I can to make the case of why these markets are important and vital and essential to everything, whether, it, whether it's the way we buy homes using a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage as our standard home ownership tool in our country, to the stability in energy prices and food prices that we take for granted None of us ever pause as we cross into a supermarket and wonder if there's going to be fresh food or vegetables on the shelves. We take that for granted. And yet, if you've ever spent time in the developing world, you know you can never take that for granted because weather conditions, price conditions, and agriculture are so variable. In energy, same thing. But because of our robust and successful derivative markets, there's a, a price stability. There's, there's an interest rate stability. There's, there's you know, our entire credit-based economy 
is built upon stability in those rates and prices, all provided by these robust markets, well-managed, well-regulated, independently regulated markets that we oversee at the CFTC. So if I'm, if I, if, if maybe I'll be remembered as a bit of a broken record on this point, but I'll take that if that's what it takes to remind people of the essentialness of these markets and the importance of, of successful and good regulation by, agents, by this agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Is there, is there one thing that you found most challenging in this role that you weren't expecting when you took on this role? What would that be? One thing more than anything has got to be funding, Walt. I, yeah. I have to say uh, four or five years of flat funding is really, really challenging. It, what it means is you're a victim of, uh, of attrition. Uh, when, when people leave, you can't fill that spot. That's mm -hmm. what flat funding means. And, um, and so where we've seen attrition in some of our key areas, you know, it's like muscle atrophy in an athlete, flat funding. And finally, I think we've broken that cycle with our recent funding request. Even though it wasn't all that we asked for, it was a goodly portion of it enables us to address some of those shortfalls. Look, I'm, I'm a fiscal conservative as much as anybody. I, uh, I would not have asked for the additional funding if I couldn't promise that we'd spend every nickel and dime wisely. But I truly believe the funding we've requested is for the, the good of the American economy, for the good of our markets, for the good of the American people. And I, and I have braved the storms from both right and left to put my hand and heart and ask for that money that I truly think this agency merits and will put to good use on behalf of Amer American people. I think a lot of people will think of your legacy on the international side as well. You've done tremendous work. Um, on, on promoting access to markets as, as an agency and making sure there's a, a, a regulatory tapestry that fits a global marketplace. Can you, I know you're coming to our London conference, IDX, shortly. Uh, tell us a little bit on, on how the work is going on the international side, in particular uh, with Brexit approaching um, in six months, as well as other international issues you may be dealing with. Yeah, there's, there's so many facets to our work on the international side. You know, unlike um, uh, other regulatory agencies whose, whose, whose regulatory jurisdiction is primarily domestic, uh, the CFTCs is quite global. Uh, these, these um, um, first of all, our futures markets are a major export product. The world prices its ag and, and other commodities in our dollar-based markets. Our swaps markets are truly cross-border. They are trans, transaction, uh, transnational. And interestingly, the swaps market is centered in London. All of the servicing, or, or most of the servicing of it is done out of London. The clearing, the settlement, uh, a lot of the legal work is done out of London. So the CFTC has always had a very international focus uh, in its work. And a lot of those, whether it be because of Brexit or a number of other things, a lot of those international work streams have come together. So in the area of Brexit, because of that London nexus, a year ago, in the spring of 2018, the CFTC formed a Brexit task force, an in, uh, interagency task force across our many disciplines. Uh, and it was in uh, the third quarter of last year that we started alerting FSOC and some of the other and some of the members of FSOC about concerns we had as to the impact of Brexit on uh, swaps activity globally and potentially the U.S. economy 
uh, domestically. And FSOC is, is what It's the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which yep. is chaired by the U.S. Treasury, and it's all of the major U.S. financial market regulators. So we served as the point person. The CFTC served as the U.S. point person on Brexit. But we work very closely with the Bank of England, with whom we've got a, a two-decade-long relationship in overseeing uh, the, the London Clearinghouse, which is the largest clearinghouse for swaps in the world, but also working with our European partners as well. Um, and I can tell you we've had some very good success in that area, resolving a number of the Brexit-related matters, but we've still got a lot more to do. Separately, Walt, um, I did talk about my support for what is Title VII of the Dodd-Frank Act, which is the swaps provisions. I have been critical of some guidance that the CFTC adopted in 2013 about the application of CFTC rules overseas, believing that perhaps we've been too um, willing to export our rule sets abroad. And I think that's in keeping with the general tone of wanting to play a very good role in international bodies, but not wanting to do so in a way where we're imposing our laws on their jurisdictions. And I've moved toward more of a deference approach to those jurisdictions that have themselves adopted most of the core reforms of the G20. And so uh, one of the things I've done is put forward my ideas in a white paper that I published last October looking at the cross-border impact of our rules. And one of the things I'm looking to get done before I leave is two rulemakings coming out of that focus on the application of our rules overseas. And in the next few weeks, I'll have more to say about that. In fact, I hope to say something about that at IDX uh, in London in June, first week in June. Well, currently, um, Treasury Department official Heath Tarbot has been named your successor and looks to be confirmed early this summer. If you were giving advice to Heath on coming over to the agency, what, what one or two pieces of advice would you give Heath? Well, I, I've already given Heath a lot of that advice, and I'll continue to do so. But, but number one is ag. Focus on ag. Uh, when it comes to the CFTC, uh, ag commodities are probably less than 10% of what we oversee, but they're 100% of our oversight. And, and making sure that we're doing the job that Congress needs us to do on focus on our ag commodities markets and how they're working for America's agriculture producers and farmers and ranchers uh, is, is, is job number one. You know, Ford Motor Company used to, used to say quality is job number one. Agriculture commodities is job number one for the CFTC. But more broadly, I would say um, listen, learn, and lead. Listen, listen to the uh, constituents, listen to the markets, learn about the role our markets play, and, uh, and be unafraid to lead both domestically and internationally on these issues. No other agency head speaks with the authority that the chairman of the CFTC does when it comes to both domestic and global derivative markets. And with that authority, I think, comes an obligation to lead on these issues uh, and not to be shy about leading. Uh, and so that's my advice to Heath Tarbert. And I'm sure he will do a very fine job as chairman. As chairman, you have uh, uniquely embraced the Twitter handle, hashtag CryptoDad, and have developed quite a following on Twitter. Uh, you, along with our president, have been early adopters and, and users of social media to get your messaging out. Um, what is it about social media that you have found effective in your role as chairman and also getting information? I know we've talked about this offline that you, you read a lot of Twitter re, uh, tweets uh, during the day to get your information as well. Yeah, so I think, you know, 
one of the key jobs of a chairman of any agency, and especially this agency, is to communicate a vision and to let people know where you're going and why you're doing it and how you view the world, how you view it markets. And so I first took to Twitter because it was just apparent to me that that was an audience um, that um, uh, was growing and it was just another medium of expression. I've come to actually really value Twitter. Uh, it's a way of getting uh, a message out unfiltered um, uh, by, uh, by mass media or business media. Uh, it's a way to get it out efficiently, quickly, effectively. Um, and, but also, Walt, as you say, it's also a way of gathering information. I, I actually find the first information I get of the day is from Twitter. I follow the news sources and, and people in the marketplace uh, whose views I value. And um, in, in a very quick read, I'm able to gather a lot of quick market intelligence. Um, and so I find Twitter to be a very effective tool, uh, and I now understand better why so many people use it. Now, I think one has to be disciplined in using it, uh, as as um, uh, as is obvious, um, as you would in any medium, uh, to be disciplined. But I, I try to do that, um, and I found it to be very effective. And you have, through Twitter, have really connected with a different demographic, I think, than than typically chairman of the CFTC, including myself. Um, in the past, have have been able to connect with probably a, a broader and a younger audience, in particular. Uh, in fact, you gained thousands of Twitter followers when you testified on virtual currencies that you thought we owe it to this generation to respect their enthusiasm for virtual currencies with a thoughtful and balanced response and not a dismissive one. Um, and people really adopted you as their really regulatory leader in this typical in this area of virtual currencies. Um, you know, I was laughing. I. I thought it was the role of our generation to not listen to the younger generation and be curmudgeons like, like our parents to, before us. But, um, and I know you're a, a Jersey boy and it reminded me of reading his autobiography and he, he would have never written Born to Run without his rebellion against his dad. Yeah. So I guess to, to come to a very stretched question here, um, you know, how should regulators balance both supporting new and innovative products like cryptocurrency, AKA your, your crypto dad role, with the need to be a skeptic as a regulator, as all regulators should be, aimed at protecting the marketplace from fraud and abuse, AKA Bruce Springsteen's yes. dad, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, it's it, 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 an interesting story, Walt. You, you, you talk about Twitter and using new medium. Um, I think my following on Twitter is about 50,000 or just short of that or something. But what's fascinating is I actually, those followers didn't come about through the use of new technology. They actually came about through about as stale and dusty a, a medium as you might expect. And that was a Senate testimony. <laughs> uh, and it may be worth just a bit of a story. So, so I was asked to testify alongside um, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton about cryptocurrency in, in late January, early February um, 2018. And of course, I worked for, for, you know, 10 days before on a very lengthy statement um, uh, to deliver as part of my testimony. I think it came out to be about 50 pages or so and it gone through many iterations and many drafts and, and our general counsel and our, our technology people. Finally, it was ready to go. And the night before, I needed to just draft a very short five minute introductory statement. And as I started parsing through this long document, trying to pull things out of it, 
I said, oh no, this is impossible. Let me just speak to them candidly. And what I wanted to do is reflect, what I wanted to do was reflect on our family ski trip that had just happened during New Year's, which we do every year. I've got three brothers and they all have children and we always get together and we, we ski together. And during the few nights we were out um, listening to all the nieces and nephews talking, they were fascinated by uh, Bitcoin. And um, I engaged in a number of conversations, and they knew at the CFTC we had just uh, allowed the self-certification of Bitcoin futures. So my niece and nephews were saying, Uncle Chris, tell us about this, and why did you do that? And we had some great conversations there well into the night. So at that Senate testimony, I basically pushed aside that 50-page draft, and I said, Senators, if you'll allow me to speak to you for a moment, not as the chairman of an agency, but just as a dad, and I said, I want to share with you some conversations that maybe some of you have had at your own dinner tables or your own holiday conversations about this newfound interest in cryptocurrency. And I described uh, what, what the nieces and nephews and kids were saying. And then I said, you know, I think we owe it to them to sort of take this seriously, not dismiss it as just some new fad, but to really uh, take it. Well, no sooner did those words come out of my mouth than my phone was uh, it was, was not ringing, but th there's a sound it makes when you get sort of a new follower. And it was just doing it, and I had to turn it off in my pocket. It was vibrating like mad. And literally within a week, I had something like 46,000 followers to come out of a Senate hearing, not to come out of some tweet or something, to come out of a Senate hearing. So it's funny how uh, new media, old media, uh, finds its way um, to. So, so, but just on, on my feelings on this, look, I, I really believe that we have a higher duty, and I say this with all humility, but we have a higher duty in the United States than elsewhere. You know, technology traditionally begins here, and it begins here because we don't seek to squash it. We don't seek to suppress it. We find a way to, to allow it to run its course. Maybe there'll be some mistakes along the way. Maybe there'll be errors. There certainly are no shortage of fraud and manipulation and we're taking steps uh, aggressively to stamp that out. But that doesn't mean you go the full other direction and seek to suppress it. And if we did that with the internet, we wouldn't have um, all of uh, you know Uber and, and Airbnb and all of the, the modern things we have today. And I think we have to take a similar approach. To this. I don't know where this goes, but wherever it's gonna go, it's gotta go here. Because that, we're the United States. That's what we do. We do new innovation. We do technology. We have a comfort level with it. And I want to see it evolve here, in a, but in a controlled way. We, we do have adult responsibilities, but we also have a, a, a youthful enthusiasm about new, new technology. And we want to we have both exist side by side here. Well, Chris, in, in the CFTC has as its mission, if you read the Commodity Exchange Act, it's, it talks about how the CFTC has a a mission of promoting responsible innovation. And I think responsible is the key word there that you have allowed for innovation, but uh, to make sure that it's appropriate and fair and, and well-regulated. And um, so you've really taken that mission to heart and we appreciate it. Um, you know, I do wanna talk to you a little bit about the cryptocurrency movement and where do you think that's going? I don't know if you have a long view of how you think this might be regulated over the next five years. Well, I, 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 real long view, Walt, um, I, I think it's here to stay. So um, uh, just think back over the last 20 years um, as, as the mobile phone evolved, the technology um, 
grew here, but the adoption actually took place much quicker in the developing world. You know, we, we had the benefit uh, 30 years ago of a pay phone on virtually every street corner, and, and the need for a mobile phone was not as developed with our you know, existing landlines and, and, and infrastructure. Where did the mobile phone took off? It took place in the developing world, Africa and others, where there was no infrastructure. Um, and it took off uh, dramatically. Um, and in fact, traveling in Africa now, virtually everybody has a mobile phone to conduct commerce. Well, in a similar way, we have a functioning currency that functions very well, functioning payment systems that work very well. But in many corners of the world, there are neither. Um, if, if you visit Sierra Leone and, and, and shop in the, in the local marketplace, you can buy a chicken or vegetables using the Leone. But if you want to buy a Toyota, hard currency only. It's dollars or euros or Swiss francs. Um, there is a need for functioning currencies in many parts of the world where their own currencies are pretty worthless. And I, I think you are going to see uh, forms of payment systems and forms of, 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 of digital-based currencies take off in corners of the globe that don't have functioning ones. Uh, now, it's hard for us in dollar-based economies to, to understand that, just as it was probably hard for our predecessors to understand how, how the mobile phone took off, because who needs it when you got a phone in every house and a phone in every street corner? But it did, and I think, and in fact, it, those payment systems are going to be mobile phone based, and those digital currencies are going to be accessible through the mobile phone. So I think the two of them go hand in hand. So I, I absolutely believe in a big future um, for this, um, but it might not be one that, that, that really takes off in the West as well as it does elsewhere. And, and I, by the West, I mean in the developed world. The other thing I'd say is I'm also very, very bullish on blockchain technology, especially for financial markets. Um, in a speech I did at the uh, DC um, uh, Digital Chamber, the Chamber of Digital Commerce at Georgetown University a few weeks ago, I talked about how uh, I believe that if, if a blockchain-based system had been in place 10 years ago where that would have recorded the, uh, uh, the credit exposure of our major banks to each other through their CDS contracts, we would have known that, that, that the total exposure of Lehman Brothers on, on credit default swaps was not 400 billion, but was less than 9 billion. And if we'd known it was less than 9 billion, the, 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 the public sector response might have been totally different than it, is, than it was. I believe blockchain is, is a huge quantum leap forward um, in, in financial service markets, but in so many other areas as well. And I think in the next decade, you're gonna see that. You know, funny thing about technology, when you're in, when, in the early years, it seems so far off. And then when you finally get there and look back, it looked like it, was, it happened so fast. I think we're going to see blockchain innovation take place uh, fairly rapidly. Well, I want to close out our discussion. And you've been very generous with your time. But to talk something a little bit more personal and intimate to the both of us. But I know we, are, we share a deep love of, of music. Um, you are an accomplished musician on both the guitar and the, and the banjo. In fact, I was I was thrilled to see you recently perform Johnny Be Good with uh, Congressman Peterson's Honky Tonk Rock Band at an agricultural event, and it was it was outstanding. It really was great. Um, I'm also a musician. I sometimes find myself thinking about work and life in musical terms, you know, whether it's writing speeches and thinking about theme setting and and, and going to different uh, thematic uh, returns of the chorus and whatever it might be. 
but in life and work, there are times when there's discord where things aren't working and things times when the chords resolve themselves yeah. uh, into harmony. And, and I'm just curious, how has music shaped your life, both personally and professionally? Yes, so many ways, Walt. You know, my dad, who was actually a concert uh, violinist, uh, 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 became a, a physician and a, um, a surgeon, but he always enjoyed uh, music as his hobby, and I think I picked that up from him. I, I'm not much of a golfer, um, but but I love music, and I love playing music. I love performing in, in bands, um, and I've played in bands pretty much continuously since high school, one, one amateur band or, or another. There's just something about getting in an ensemble and getting a tune started and everybody playing their role um, uh, that just brings a smile to my face. And, and I love the give and take that comes in performing a band. And it, it is a great analogy for so much in life. I think my entire management style comes about um, the way when I perform with a band. Someone once told me that in, in, in running an organization, you pick um, your senior leadership team for their individual skills, but you manage them for their shortcomings. And the same thing is, is true about music. I've played with some of the best musicians around. Every one of them outside of music is, uh, has their own shortcomings. Um, but when you get together as a band, you put out your best and you bring your best to the table. And um, uh, I've just, it's just been a great hobby. It remains a great hobby. And one of the things I intend to do when I leave the commission is play a lot more music, <laughs> get my old band back together again, do some touring. And you mentioned Bruce Springsteen. One of the greatest um, uh, treats I've had is to play at the Stone Punny in Asbury Park, New Jersey, where Bruce Springsteen really began his music career, became, became well-known. And um, um, there's a gig there at the end of the summer, and my band is playing. And if they'll let me sit in, I'll be back with them. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to that. Well, unfortunately, uh, today's song is coming to an end, and I want to thank Chairman Giancarlo for being our guest number one on our inaugural podcast of FIA Speaks, and for, importantly, serving the public over the last five years. We, we have cherished your time uh, with us at FIA, and you've given us so much, um, a, a tone setting and a, and a change of direction for our industry and we can never uh, thank you enough. So thank you so much, Chris, for being here today. It's my pleasure, Will. Thank you for those kind words. It's been great. And to our listeners, we want to hear your feedback at FIA Speaks at FIA.org. Thanks for listening. FIA Speaks is brought to you by the staff of the FIA. Steve Adamski is our executive producer. Cameron Lane is our technical producer, with additional technical support from Craig Richardson. We welcome your feedback on these podcasts at fiaspeaks at fia.org. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide investment, tax, business, legal or professional advice to any individual or entity. Unless specifically stated otherwise, neither FIA nor its members endorse, approve, recommend or certify any information, opinion, product, process, service, individual or entity presented or mentioned in this podcast. FIA makes no representations, warranties or guarantees as to the accuracy or completeness of any of the podcast's content. Reliance on the podcast content is done at your own risk. FIA disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special of consequential damages arising out of any use of, reference to, reliance on or inability to use this podcast or its contents. 
any commercial use, resale or redistribution of this podcast without the FIA's express written consent is prohibited. Copyright 2019 FIA, all rights reserved. For more information, visit FIA.org.